You know, you may or may not know this about me, but I speak basically in this way. 20% of the words that come out of my mouth are terrible Bible puns and, and Bible jokes. 10% of my words are actual legitimate thoughts. And 70% of all the things that I say are quotes from The Office. I have seen The Office a disgusting number of times. I, I lost count sometime around... 15, and now I just put it on in the background. I can quote whole episodes from memory. I skip Dinner Party and Scott's Tots every third time, and now I am here to bring you this piece of wisdom. Sometime in season five, there's an episode where Michael has Pam come into his office and say, hey, you have a call, when Michael actually doesn't have a call. He then responds with something like, I have the most important call right in front of me. He does this to impress clients and make himself seem really important because he saw it on a movie once. However, as you can probably guess, this doesn't go super well. He's sitting in his office with his boss when he tells Pam to come in. Pam comes in and does this bit, but when Michael says he can't take the call, his boss insists that he does. Hilarity ensues. It's super, super awkward. It's great. It's why I love the show. Well... And I'm getting to my point. Just hold on. There's another episode near the end of the show, sometime around season eight, when Andy, another character, is the boss, is in the same place that Michael was in. And Andy does the exact same thing. He has his receptionist come in and say that there's someone waiting for his call in order to impress a potential client. Well, for long-time watchers of the show, they would have remembered the first time that this happened and immediately knew that this was absolutely not going to end well. And it doesn't. Because great writers, they, they do this. They set something up early on and then they pay it off by either repeating the same events with a twist or ensuring the same outcome as before. Likewise, the Bible does this all the time. There are so many stories that echo stories that came way, way before. And these stories either end differently or exactly the same as the first time around. And you're supposed to learn something by picking up on these patterns. The moral is in the twist or in the similarity. Similarly, the New Testament does this with the Old Testament all the time. Like, remember how Zechariah and Elizabeth are old and childless? That's just echoing the story of Abraham and Sarah. Or uh, Jesus is in the garden being tested. That's echoing the story of Adam and Eve. Or how Paul takes the ideas of forgiveness and reconciliation that Jesus puts up on the cross and echoes them back to Philemon to forgive Onesimus. Great literature will always pay off what it sets up. The Bible is no exception. So what exactly is the overarching story being told in the New Testament? It can be hard to see since the narrative acts are seemingly interrupted by the letters that are in the second half of the New Testament, and we call these epistles, and they're right in the middle. But I'm sure if we take a step back and look at this thing from a 30,000-foot view, we can see clearly the story that's being communicated by the New Testament. Like we talked about last week, there is and has been for some time a clear structure to the New Testament. It goes as follows. We have the narrative gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, the Pauline epistles, which are arranged from longest to shortest, epistles by other disciples, and then the Revelation of John at the end. The story starts off actually in the Old Testament, when at its close, the prophets lament that God's spirit is being taken away from Israel and that one day 
a man in the likeness of Elijah, will come to prepare the way of the Lord. Fade out. On the horizon of the Galilean desert, a small figure walks slowly. The sun rises behind him. The heat circulates off the ground. If this was an alien movie, it would open with the buildings destroyed and the world ended. If this was a superhero movie, the city would be quiet. Too quiet. The man on the horizon is clothed in camel's hair, and he mutters to himself the Psalms as he walks. This is a man named John the Baptizer, and he comes in the likeness of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord to the people of Israel. He started a new movement out of the desert wasteland off the east bank of the Jerusalem slopes down near the Jordan River, where he's been baptizing people and claiming that God, in the Messiah, is coming soon. People have started to listen to him, and they gather near him to hear him preach of this coming kingdom. The people have waited their entire lives for this. Not only them, but their parents, and their parents' parents, and their grandparents' grandparents, and... There have been other people in the past few hundred years claiming to be the Messiah in accordance with the Daniel prophecies. But all of them, tricksters wanting money for their magic, have been put to death and their disciples have scattered. Could John be the next victim of this Messiah mania that so many have fallen victim to? He doesn't seem like it. He keeps claiming it will be someone coming after him. Someone greater than himself. Weird. On the opposite slope, a man walks by that catches the attention of John. He stops and calls out to him. His name is Jesus. And he comes from the slum town of Nazareth, off to the north. Jesus walks down to John and asks to be baptized. When he is, the heavens open up, just like they did in creation or at the flood. But this time, the Spirit of God descends upon the man. And John knows this is he whom they have waited for. But Jesus must follow in the footsteps of his ancestors and be tempted and tried before his ministry can truly begin. The Spirit of God leads him out into the wilderness where an enemy of the world, the ancient serpent, the accuser, the opposition, attacks him. But unlike his ancestors in the wilderness, Jesus succeeds at these temptations and can start his ministry in the north near the Dead Sea. Our accounts seem to split ways here as they point out and highlight different aspects of Jesus' ministry, all trying to accomplish slightly different tasks. Matthew claims that Jesus is the king of the Jews, and every good kingdom has a set of laws, a code of conduct, and so here we hear those laws. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. But these laws are so utterly and profoundly different than the world's laws, how can anyone follow them perfectly? They sound great, but way, way too hard. From there, Jesus moves on in the power of the Holy Spirit and begins to live out those kingdom values by healing people and teaching more of them. Jesus also gathers a large crowd around him, like John had, but tenfold. He picks 12 to be his close representatives, a picture-perfect representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. These 12 are all different kinds of scoundrels. One is a religious zealous nut, while the other is a traitor to his own religion. But if they're going to live in this kingdom, they ought to start to live peaceably now. Jesus takes three of those twelve and he makes them really close friends. With those close friends, he goes up on a tall mountain in the spirit of Moses and before them, he's transfigured. He glows a bright white and the spirit of Moses and Elijah are with him, ministering to him. 
This would be a super strange encounter for anyone not familiar with the stories of Moses and Elijah. But luckily, biblical readers are really familiar with these stories. We see that these two men, Elijah and Moses, had profound encounters with God, with Yahweh, on these mountains. Could, could the Messiah be Yahweh in the flesh? Once they come down from the mountain, we see the miracles get kicked way up a notch. People are healed without even laying eyes on Jesus. A man is raised from the dead, and all the while, Jesus keeps talking about this weird and strange event he calls his quote-unquote death. The disciples don't believe it. After all, if he's the Messiah, he can't die. Plus, they're all headed south towards Jerusalem now. That's exactly where the Messiah will conquer the Roman Empire. The Messiah is, after all, a great military conqueror who will come to destroy the oppressive empires like the prophet said in the Old Testament. Well, it's Passover week now, and Jewish people from all over the ancient world gather in Jerusalem, this massive city in the heart of Israel where David, a thousand years before, set up the city of God. This is it. Hosanna, praise God, Emmanuel, God with us. This is the triumphant entry point of the Messiah, Jesus, as king over all the Jews, over all of the earth. People flock to this moment, having heard of the incredible miracles he's performed and the great feats and accomplishments he's done up in the north. This could really be the Messiah. Jesus makes a beeline straight for the temple. It's about to go down. He marches into the temple, flips over the tables, calls them out, a den of robbers steams out, cheers and whoops can be heard echoing throughout the temple. And Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps over his city. Rome is the oppressor. The religious leaders in Jerusalem are the oppressors. Humanity is the oppression to God's good creation. And it all started here, in Jerusalem, where God made his people his covenant people. The religious leaders are not happy. <laughs> They've heard of this blasphemous character in the north, and now that he's in their territory, he's ruined their temple and caused a massive uproar. Over the course of the next week, they will seek every opportunity to trap him in his words and ultimately kill him, to silence him and his disciples. The fact that he flipped over all the tables, that'll get him killed by Friday. He spends the week teaching and serving in the temple and in the garden surrounding the temple. He eats with the tax collectors and the sinners, the ungodly of the ungodly, but he also eats with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. One of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, begins to work with these religious leaders to betray Jesus to them. To that end, the task is successful. The whole narrative, anyway, seems to have led up to this moment. Humans moved by God to choose between him and ourselves. Judas, a man who has sided with the religious leaders and come out of the whole affair a slight bit richer, chose a pretty good thing, right? I mean, if we were a first century Jew, we'd think it'd be a pretty good thing. He has sided with his own people, with the people who are the voice of God, and he's gotten some money out of it, which, if we were a first century Jew, we would also know that that means you are blessed by God. The more money you have, the more blessing you have from heaven. But as we've seen since the garden, the life of a human is difficult. 
and our choice is not between good and bad, but rather good and pretty good. And thus, we see another human in another garden, just as before. Jesus is praying that the will of God be done in his own life, unlike his ancestor Adam, who decided that the will of humanity should rule, even though the will of God will mean his own death. Judas leads a mob in classic fashion with torches and swords to where Jesus is praying. They capture the praying man and lead him to the high court under the night sky. It's an illegal move on the part of the Pharisees. No one is allowed to be tried at night. But here they are, when the crowds are asleep. They find him guilty of blasphemy, and the gospel writers make the irony utterly apparent. They let go a man named Barabbas, son of the father in Aramaic. An utter tragedy. They lead Jesus up a hill, cross on his back, nail him, and raise him leaving him hanging in the cold air to die. Most victims of crucifixion take days to die. They die of asphyxiation, they suffocate. But Jesus, having been beaten so brutally, dies within hours. It's finished. Bringing our story to a climactic close. Ending how it finished, with the death of a man. You know, I learned about the irrevocability and the inevitability of death at 12 when my dad passed away. You know, sometimes I let my mind wander and, and I think about what it would be like if I got to see him again today. What would we do? What would we talk about? I mean, it's ridiculous and, and fantasy, but I think anyone who has ever lost someone would understand this. And sometimes, sometimes I think about just what the disciples would have felt like on that Friday. Because they didn't just lose someone that they loved, they lost love himself. And I think that's why Mary and Martha went first thing on Sunday morning to anoint him with burial oil. They run quickly from where they were staying to the tomb where he was laid. But when they get there, they only see a gardener. <laughs> they only see the one who planted the garden. The one who's responsible for the creation and cultivation of all of it. <laughs> Standing there with two angels, they cannot believe their eyes. The author is presenting Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed Christ, the snake crusher who has come to reverse what Adam did in the garden. And Jesus is beckoning all who believe in him, in his lordship, in his kingship, all who believe in his place as God, to join him in defeating the grave as well. The women, they run back and tell the others all that they've seen and all that they've heard. But their excitement, it cannot be understated. They have peace, they have joy, they have love physically back with them in their midst. I can only imagine what they did, what they talked about. 
And Jesus tells them that they should go and they should share this truth, this new reality, that death has been conquered and sins can be forgiven, which finally creates for Yahweh human representatives to, to go and cultivate his good creation in the lives of others. This was the plan in the garden, this was the plan at Sinai, and now this is the plan to the ends of the earth. The authors recount Jesus ascending into heaven and sitting down at the right hand of the Father, completing the job of the priest started in Leviticus. The disciples? Well, they actually stay put for some time. Thousands of years before this, Moses went up on a mountain and received the Ten Commandments. The Jewish people? They called this Pentecost. During the celebration of Pentecost after Jesus' death, the disciples receive not ten more commandments, but the Spirit of God himself in their own bodies. Where once the mountain of Sinai was on fire, their tongues are now lit aflame. And once where a tower of Babel dispersed all of human language, all of human language comes together again. After they're baptized into the Holy Spirit, the disciples spread this good news all across the Mediterranean. They seem to be raconteurs, recounting the story that all of humanity has fallen out of right relationship with God. And unlike every other religion at the time, they claim that all you have to do to be in right relationship with God is not about what you sacrifice, it's not about how you treat other people, it's not about following any set of arbitrary standards, but rather it's about believing and trusting in Jesus' place as God, and our place as servants to that God. Some people, they believe this message wholeheartedly. Others are skeptical. And still others, they simply find it preposterous. We meet one of the biggest proponents of this new religion, a man named Saul, who was a Pharisee himself and even persecuted Christians. But on the road to a place called Damascus, he's met by the risen Savior Jesus, and he spends the rest of his life planting churches all around the ancient world. He even writes them letters to address how this new reality can and should shape their lives to be more honoring to the God that saved them. After all, he claims, if any of this is true, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then God is worthy of whatever little obedience you can muster up. At the end of this wild, transcendent epic, we do get another story, an epilogue, about where all of this is going. It's a crazy new future where God is king over all of creation once again, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord, because he, taking on the likeness of man, died while we were still sinners, so that we might be reconciled to him. And the Father sent his one and his only Son into the world, so that whoever would even simply just believe in him may be reconciled back to this God, like a master being reconciled to a slave, or a man to his wife, or a child to his parent, or a bride to the bridegroom, or Adam to Eve, humanity to their God. This future contains no evil, no death, no sin. It's filled with justice and righteousness, and that what was lost in the garden, the ability to eat from the tree of life, 
is regained in this new creation, where corrupt, evil nations and people will have no power, and Jesus will reign as the risen, eternal Savior of creation. It says, Then the angel of the Lord showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. Hey, thank you for letting me tell this story today. It really has been a true honor to hear what you guys think of the program, and and I have loved every minute of doing it. It's been the most meaningful work of my life, and, and I would love to keep doing it. So it would mean the world to me if you gave this a like or reviewed it, or if you can check us out on some other platforms like YouTube or Instagram. Even so, I'm going to try to do this as long as I can. Okay, enough of it. Go and live out this new reality. Until then, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much. My name is Austin, and this is Bible Unbound.